Thank you for listening to the Define Nobody's podcast with Eric Arjuna and special guests. If you enjoy this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobody's Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your host, Eric Ajna. Hey there, fam. Welcome back to Divine Nobody's Podcast. I hope everyone is doing okay. Uh, if you're listening to this episode, you may have noticed a new look and feel to the podcast and uh, also got a chance to listen to that spiffy new intro we got. So uh, some of you may or may not know, uh, but Jenna is going through a lot of major changes in her life, both personal and professional, and uh, we'll be taking some time away from the pod in order to ground herself into those changes. You may have noticed that she hasn't uh, really been on the last few episodes or so. So just to give you some context, uh, Jen is my best friend, and we've known each other for many, many years. And uh, we met during a really auspicious time in our spiritual journey, uh, where we were fortunate enough to experience a lot of growth and evolution together. So I'm extremely grateful for the very special and unique connection that we have. And uh, I do anticipate her returning in the future, but uh, until then, I'm going to be continuing the Divine Nobody's podcast journey with you all. Uh, through the solo cast that I've been doing for the last few episodes, um, which has you know, been a really great opportunity to go even deeper into some of these spiritual themes that we're all very passionate about exploring together. So in the meantime, I, uh, I am in the process of bringing in a new co-host in Jen's absence, and uh, now we'll keep everyone updated in the weeks ahead with uh, any developments on that. So uh, yeah, I sincerely appreciate our listeners uh, sticking with us as we evolve together and move through all the changes. So uh, with that said, uh, today I wanted to spend some time reflecting on a, a really powerful teaching that uh, came to the forefront uh, after a recent doctor's visit that I had for annual blood work, right? Uh, of course, they determined that I was healthy, but uh, the surreal thing about this experience had more to do with my interaction with a, a new physician that I hadn't previously met. You know, um, when many people think of family physicians, uh, we tend to think of uh, a character like Hugh Laurie from the show House, you know, like where he played a, a well-respected physician in his 50s and 60s. And uh, I imagine we fabricate these expectations of doctors needing to be older because they seem to always embody this quality of uh, intellectual wisdom due to the many years that it takes them to master their craft as a physician, right? Well... Uh, in this coming-of-age story of me visiting the doctor, uh, it didn't quite pan out that way. So uh, as I was sitting in the room waiting for him to arrive, uh, I hear a couple knocks at the door, and when the door opened, uh, I was greeted by a fellow that looked to be of the exact same age as me. You know, it's a, it's a really surreal thing to experientially feel where your level of adulthood falls on the spectrum of life. And when I met this fellow, uh, it became all too clear that what we in our 30s are quickly approaching is the generation that once belonged to our parents. And uh, that is the generation where we as adults are in the role of sort of bringing our humanity forward into the future, right? For each other and uh, for the younger generation to come. So as disorienting as it was to place my trust into a physician my age, uh, 
there was a comforting yet kind of profound aspect to it. And that came mainly from the conversations we had between us. So what started as a, a conversation about health quickly turned into a mutual discussion over the sort of dire condition of our current world. And I'm not sure what compelled this individual to break through the norm of patient-physician interaction, but it was comforting to leave that conversation feeling more as an equal and uh, less of a, a patient interacting with the physician, right? Uh, there was more of a human element to it. And the theme of that conversation uh, had to do with the sadness and frustration that he had undergone as a result of being a physician at the height of the pandemic. Um, somehow, the intensity and trauma he had experienced placed his identity as a physician into uh, a type of instability. And it seemed to be an instability just so strong uh, that I was gifted the opportunity to, you know, really get to know him, uh, not as a physician, uh, but as a friend. And uh, in that moment, I had this beautiful sense that Source was in the room with us. You know, no longer were the images and roles creating barriers between genuine human interaction, especially between two strangers. You know, it was just two people having a meaningful conversation. You know, uh, one thing that I remember fairly well uh, was walking through a grocery store at the height of the pandemic and um, seeing what looked to be uh, scared and stoic faces of people in my community. And uh, what used to be a highly independent and solitary group of individuals turned into a, a curious sense of desperate reciprocity between complete strangers. You know, prior to the pandemic, uh, it was seen as somewhat of a miracle to connect eyes with people from the community and uh, sort of sneak in things like a hello or a good day. Uh, people always seemed so preoccupied with whatever busy schedule they had. And everyone there seemed to be on this one-person mission to enter and leave as quickly as they arrived. And um, the bulk of the interaction between others seemed limited to you know, casual glances into the shopping carts of complete strangers. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a real feeling to gauge the emotional well-being of another person by what type of items they have in their carts, right? But, you know, this seemed to be the reality of what people experienced in environments like this. But then the pandemic hit. And fast forward a few months, you know, I, I find myself in the same environment that once you know, it once seemed more like a spiritual ghost town, um, only to re-enter and find this peculiar energy of forced presence in the eyes of those same individuals who were once just so preoccupied with time. And they were so preoccupied that they, you know, seldom made time to connect with the world outside. You know, one thing that I remember about this experience was seeing deeply into the eyes of people that were once just so confident in who they were and what they represented, and seeing it them just you know suddenly transformed into a version of themselves they didn't yet clearly know or understand. You know, it's um, it's interesting how far we will go to sustain the belief we have in who we are. You know, everything around us in our world today um, seems designed to keep you grasping onto this idea and belief you have of who you are and who it is that you'd like to be. And not only is it designed to keep us grasping, it appears to also be designed to keep us in this 
perpetual state of needing something other than what we intrinsically already have in order to be happy. And um, it seems that we'll go great lengths to utilize the tools given by our culture to keep this little game going that we have uh, with ourselves. You know, to continue this game of intermittent reinforcement with our identity and who we believe or, you know, want to believe that we are. And uh, it will do this uh, even at the cost of our association with human life, you know, our association with people, right? You know, um, we have a really a myriad of resources at our fingertips that are always standing by for you to aspire to be something other than what you are. You know, we have movies that inspire us to be heroes or villains. We have television shows that influence the, the way in which we see relationships. We have technology that influences a sense of uh, intellectual superiority over others. Um, we have music that inspires us to seek fame. You know, we have things like commercials and ads that speak to our most primitive human desires and wants. We have money that uh, inspires a certain type of behavior we engage in in order to get it. And, uh, you know, even more so when we actually do obtain it, right? We, uh, we have schools that influence us and how we think and feel. And uh, if there's anything that you want to be, if there's anything that you desire or need, we have to do very little to find it because uh, our culture is always on standby to provide it and to support it. And as easy as it is to obtain what we desire, uh, it's just as easy to pretend we are a certain person once we've convinced ourselves of who we are. I mean, ironically enough, um, we can find anything we desire, but you know, the one thing that we need the most, the one thing that the deepest aspect of ourselves craves, we have the most trouble finding. I mean, sure, there are plenty of resources we have available that can sharpen our intellectual understanding of spirituality, but our understanding of spirituality will do very little to bring us into the heart, right? More often, you know, we approach our understanding of spirituality in the same way that we approach gathering information to use for our own purposes. You know, we believe at a certain level that knowing spirituality is enough to shake ourselves out of the sleep that we've been in. You know, like, only to find out that, you know, this knowing is what pushes us further and further away from truth. You know, often our knowing and understanding of spirituality is what sort of inspires us to create an even stronger identity as a spiritual person. And we do this in the same way that we aspire to be famous, you know, like in the same way that we want to make money. Um, eventually, you know, we go from being a person to being a spiritual person. Of course, there isn't anything wrong with being a spiritual person, but there is a responsibility that many people overlook in taking on the energy of this force. And uh, this responsibility is that we not try and possess it as something that belongs to us. You know, that, that we not take these practices and build another house for our egos to live in. Because if we aren't careful, uh, this is exactly what will happen if we're not careful. And... Uh, you know, the landscape of our spiritual community today uh, is a perfect example of what it looks like when ego tries to possess spirituality. It will even go as far as to monetize it so that you can possess it in the same way that you possess a car after you've purchased it, right? And, and once you've paid 
thousands and thousands of dollars for it, you know, we take pride in the fact that it now belongs to us. You know, it's really quite surreal when you think about it. You know, like this idea that if we invest in ourselves monetarily, the energetic pull of this investment will somehow catapult us into not only believing we are who we want to be, but also knowing we are this person because we've given up something we see as valuable to obtain it. And we can give up many things along our journey, but you know, rarely, rarely do we have enough courage to give up our images we have of who we are. I mean, after all, this is really the one and only thing that seems to get in the way of our discovery of self. You know, we can invest money in ourselves, we can take expensive retreats, we can buy hundreds of dollars worth of books and courses, we can invest in clothing that make us look and feel more enlightened or spiritual. Yet the one thing we never think of giving up is this entire game we've been playing of trying to buy ourselves into being spiritual enough. And I wonder why this is. Well, I think it's because the investment we make feeds the images that we are trying to create of living the life of a spiritual person. And this is what I want to talk about today. You know, not just about the images we create of being an enlightened being on the path, but of this uh, grandiose journey we call becoming a person. And not only a person, but, you know, a person of what we would consider to be of prestige and value in our society. So I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that at the peak of the pandemic, I found myself walking through the aisles of Whole Foods, connecting eyes with people from the community. And although the sadness and despair that most people felt during this time was justified, uh, what came along with these feelings of hopelessness was this sort of subtle and transformative energy of complete surrender to, you know, what at the time we considered to be the unknown, right? Of course, it wasn't this sparkly, mystical type of unknown that we often reflect on after uh, something like a profound psychedelic experience. You know, there were no elemental spirits sort of traversing through the astral plane, just spray painting sacred geometry on the walls of Whole Foods. It was a uh, more of a, a simple and profound unknown that we typically only experience in times of distress or uncertainty. Uh, we can call it the existential unknown, you know, like an unknown that we're never fully prepared to experience because it enters into life unannounced usually. This unknown comes as a result of usually like trauma or heartbreak or loss of a loved one. I mean, I'm certain we've all felt an unknown like this before, right? where something happens and we have absolutely no choice but to surrender to the circumstances in life. And this is what I'm talking about, right? And as I walked through this market, this is what I saw in the faces of just regular everyday people. It was this energy that permeated the ground and the atmosphere that I occupied. And uh, if this energy had a message or a voice, it would be saying, this is a space in which you can no longer pretend to be who you thought you were. And as a result of the sort of collective energetic pull, I found myself in a room, you know, not with doctors or yoga teachers, not with engineers or influencers, you know, not with musicians or artists, but with human beings. And it took something like the reckoning of a global pandemic to break through every egoic fortress we've ever created that sort of shielded us from each other. And suddenly, I'm staring into the eyes of a woman staring back at me as if she just woke up from a dream that she'd been sort of immersed in 
for the last 30 years of her life. And for a moment, I felt as if we were part of the same tribe, just sort of traversing through this gamut of uncertainty together. And uh, all it took was uh, a subtle shift in the way we collectively experience the world, right? All it took was for the uncertainty of life to shake through the foundation of where we as humans find comfort. And that is in the images that we spend our entire lives trying to sustain. You know, before the pandemic, uh, I had a very busy life as a sound healer. And I had worked at several yoga studios in and around the Los Angeles area. And at the time, uh, we had what I would consider to be a, a flourishing spiritual and healing community. Um, yoga studios had a very diverse schedule of workshops dedicated to you know, things like self-exploration, healing, and meditation. Right? You had uh, ecstatic dance events, transformational festival events held by local promoters in the city, and this really devout sense that you were a part of something just truly special. I mean, more than anything, I see this movement as an intentional community, and Los Angeles was our home. And um, as a way to sort of contribute to this accelerating inward revolution of spiritual seekers, I dedicated my life to being a sound healer. And of course, I hadn't always been a sound healer. Uh, I was a meditation teacher in the lineage of non-dual Advaita Vedanta spirituality prior to that. But uh, I also had this strong belief in the healing power of therapeutic sound. And of course, you know, this came as a result of uh, some very beautiful like, mystical experiences I had that involved sound frequencies. And so my intention was to integrate sound healing with spiritual teachings. And uh, this was the path that I had chose for many years. And prior to the pandemic, that's the journey that I was on. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, and almost overnight, you know, that community just disappeared and went underground. The yoga studios closed, uh, the classes ended. Um, no longer were we occupying the homes of those within the community that offered a safe haven for those on the spiritual path. I mean, all of that stopped. And in an instant, you know, everything we placed so much of our love into came to an end. Of course, you know, it didn't completely disappear. But what did seem to disappear was, was the sense of comfort and stability that it would always be and just feel the way that it's always felt. You know, like the community was this collaborative orchestra of the most beautiful music that we'd all been dancing to for years. And one day, it's like our big brother barges into the room and knocks our record player over. And what was a beautiful symphony became a collection of just aggressive scratching noises producing the sound of static in our ears. And then, bam, what follows the static is just complete and total silence. You know, like complete and total stillness. And it was a stillness that not many people were prepared to experience at the time. It was a stillness so deep that what became unbelievably clear in that stillness were all the ways in which we abandon ourselves in the drama of our lives. You know, it's a surreal feeling to experience the world outside being calmer and quieter than your own mind because you realize how loud you've been. You know, it's like, it's like when you're talking to a friend in a loud nightclub and because he can't hear you, you begin shouting instead. And in the heat of your conversation, the music just goes out before you can finish your sentence. And for a few seconds, all everyone hears is 
yeah, this DJ sucks. <laughs> you know, suddenly you have dozens of eyes on you, including the DJ, and, you know, all you're left with are your regrets and this sort of strong will to abandon your post and just hit the ground running, right? See, that was most of us during the pandemic, like when the pandemic started. You know, we couldn't bear the silence of our own mind. And so we hit the ground running trying to escape the inevitability of this reckoning our egos were facing. You know, we tried everything we could to keep the game going, you know, to establish some level of normalcy in our lives. But in the end, many of us just couldn't sustain it. And this is when the proverbial dark night of the soul began. You know, slowly, everything, everything we knew about ourselves, everything we found comfort in, you know, every avenue we had used to escape from ourselves was just no longer open for us. And I'm not talking just in the spiritual community. I mean, this happened everywhere. It's just, you know, those in the spiritual community had more of a, a grasp on what this reckoning consisted of and uh, what it had to teach us. I mean, nonetheless, it, it seemed to have affected us in many of the same ways, spiritual or not. You know, like suddenly we found ourselves outside of the realms of what we found comfort in, right? Social creatures and extroverts were just no longer able to explore the outside world in the same way. You know, people seeking partners and relationships uh, can no longer connect in public spaces in the same way either. And uh, with the advent of COVID just, you know, silently ravaging the immune systems of regular people, many of those in the dating community had to reevaluate their approach to casual physical encounters with others, you know, out of fear of contracting the virus. And there were, you know, a multitude of layers affected by the, you know, sudden reckoning of this force. And uh, it affected all of us differently. I mean, suddenly... We were all faced with this sort of uh, existential dilemma that many of us had been postponing our entire lives, just trying to avoid. And that dilemma was about facing the reality of how dependent we were on the world outside. It was about, you know, coming to the realization that much of what we believed and trusted about ourselves was supported by external forces that were no longer able to keep the game going for us. You know, like um, whether that be seeking our self-validation through relationships, uh, through fame, through popularity, uh, through attention, uh, through sex, and, you know, like the list goes on and on. I mean, certainly we've all known someone in our lives that had battled with drug addiction. You know, we see the struggle they go through in trying to give up something they're deeply passionate about. And, uh, you know, many people have even shit on those people for not being able to give it up, Right. I mean, ironically, little did we know that we would be going through something similar, if not harder than that of giving up something like a heroin addiction. I mean, you think giving up drugs is hard. I mean, try giving up everything you thought were true about yourself and your life. You know, try giving up an image you've spent your entire life creating. I mean, one can only hope that this struggle during COVID, you know, allowed ourselves to be more compassionate towards, you know, those battling with the tragedy of drug addiction even though I'm certain, you know, many of the people who once cursed addicts, you know, found themselves becoming one in an effort to escape the reality of their situation. Nonetheless, the behavior is the same. And for a moment in time, you know, we were all coming to the realization that we were all addicts, you know, we were all addicts just withdrawing from the same drug. And that drug was ego. Now, if you've been on this path for some time, you've probably read or heard about the dark night of the soul, right? 
many of you have already experienced one, if, if not many in your lifetime. So a dark night of the soul can be seen as an event in someone's life where everything they know about life is put into question, right? It can be seen as an event that triggers a, a sudden recognition of everything that is wrong in your life. And in contrast to the wrong, we can often see also just everything that's right. You know, we can see the wrong as illusion and the right as understanding. I, I think that that would be a better way to put it. Um, it's an experience that sort of allows you, even for a moment, to clearly see all of the illusion that we've been immersed in, right? Um, one can also look at it as a type of waking up from illusion. And we can define illusion uh, as being ego in a way. And what wakes up, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to even define it, but if I had to put words to it, uh, it would be described as awareness. But, you know, it's not a thing. You know, it's not, it's not something that you contemplate or wrap your mind around. And it most certainly isn't the opposite of illusion. Of course, I'm talking about awareness as relative to waking up, right? But it's important to look at this more as a metaphor because it's, uh, it's really difficult to convey what this force is without placing it into words. But for the sake of this conversation, um, awareness is not a separate dimension to that of illusion. You know, it's not like we're asleep in illusion and wake up in a completely different world, just separate from where we are geographically located. No, it's not like that. Um, awareness is already here, right? So all we experience in waking up is a, a subtle shift in perspective from identifying with ego to letting ego go and realizing that something deeper, right? Something deeper and more profound is already here. The only difference now is that we're choosing to see it versus choosing to invest all of our attention in not seeing it. In other words, uh, we can think of awareness as the sky and the ego as clouds, right? It, it doesn't matter how many clouds there are in the sky. It doesn't matter what shape or form the clouds take on. The sky is still always the sky. And being asleep is something relative to focusing all of your attention on the clouds, right? How they move, the images that they create, things like that. And awareness is like the sky. No matter how many clouds dance across the sky, no matter how many storms pass, no matter how many times it rains, the sky remains exactly the same. So when we awaken from this dream of illusion, our attention shifts from the limited perspective of the clouds to the more vast and infinite perspective of the sky, right? So in the same way, uh, during a dark night of the soul experience, we go from experiencing ourselves as a person, as an ego, to experiencing ourselves as experience itself. Of course, from the surface, this doesn't at all seem like a terrible thing. And uh, fundamentally, it isn't. The issue comes when we're faced with this stark contrast awareness has against the, the sort of dense backdrop of our own illusions about life, right? And then sort of realizing that everything you've invested into these illusions are just fragile ideas and beliefs that we've spent so much of our lives trying to sustain, really only to find out that none of it could provide the safety and security and comfort that we so desperately crave from life. And when that dark night of the soul cuts through the, the, the surface of your ego, you know, suddenly we're able to see through the illusion of everything, 
where you once experienced a momentary happiness from being popular, you realize is being perpetuated from a deep, deep feelings of insecurity. You know, where you once felt passionate towards an ex that abused you, turns into a, a realization that you were recreating emotional trauma from when you were a child. You know, like where you once felt proud to be wealthy, suddenly just turns into a deep insecurity of being homeless. And, you know, like little, little after little, you know, we begin to notice that much of everything we do in life comes as a result of pain, trauma, uh, or anxiety that we're just trying to resolve, but, you know, we're going about it in the wrong way. You know, we find that much of what we do in life only serves to temporarily silence the pain that we feel. And even if it gives momentary feelings of uh, happiness or relief, we realize how fleeting and impermanent it is, right? If deep down, like all we feel is sadness, pain, or anger, eventually we realize that it always comes back, right? It may not be today or tomorrow. I mean, it may not even be a year or two from now. But eventually, you know, eventually it comes back. And the unfortunate thing about, you know, postponing the acknowledgement of our pain is that it always comes back stronger. You ever notice that? I mean, we may not realize this, but, you know, much of what people pursue in life comes as a result of our inability to cope with the reality of who we are. And it can be something as obvious and simple as not being able to cope with the fact that, you know, one day we'll die. I mean, you'd be surprised at how much chaos is generated in life by the simple fact that people think this is the only life that they will ever live. Because as long as they think that this is the only opportunity they have to get what they want, they will start wars and destroy the lives of others in order to get it. And we see this in almost every area of life, whether that be, you know, politics, love, culture, and religion. And something as simple as a misunderstanding about our own mortality can influence just enormous amounts of division in our world. And so you get an idea of how strong our identification with concepts and beliefs are. So I remember I read a book a while back uh, by an author who had died and was telling a story about a near-death experience where he was able to visit what you know Christians would consider to be heaven and hell, right? And... Uh, the author was talking about the types of spirits he encountered while he was traversing through hell. Now, I want to first start out by saying that, you know, hell isn't what we would imagine that it is. Of course, you know, if you've been on the spiritual path for some time, you're very well aware of the fact that it isn't all fire and brimstone, right? These are just the misinformed uh, theological constructs of the fundamentalist Christian church that span as far back as the Dark Ages, you know, like that that whole story about how we are sent uh, there against our will to be tortured by, you know, the actor Tim Curry dressed up in a, a Satan costume he wore during the filming of the movie Legend, you know, in the 90s, that whole thing. When in reality, hell is a dimension that some people willingly go to, right? They willingly go to sort out certain amounts of karma that they weren't able to sort out, like, while they were alive. And, um, uh, it doesn't matter if they're there for one year or a million years because, you know, time isn't linear in the spirit world, right? You wouldn't even know if you were there for one minute, let alone a million years, because time is a human construct, right? It's, it's not something that's followed in the spiritual realm. And what many people don't know uh, is that most people that willingly decide to go there end up leaving hell eventually and through their own will. 
You know, like they themselves decide to leave when they realize that it isn't the place that their spirit really wants to be. Um, an example would be uh, a drug addict that couldn't leave his addictions from life behind. And uh, so instead he decided to go into this dense space we call hell in order to continue his journey with addiction, you know, until one day he realizes how limiting of a condition he's in and then decides to leave hell and uh, return home, right? And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it sounds oddly similar to how people go about working through things that literally make them feel the same way in real life. You know, like uh, when they overly identify with things that eventually lead to them creating a type of hell while they are alive. And they can spend, you know, an entire lifetime trying to shake themselves out of it. So, yeah, about this author uh, who had a near-death experience, um, he said, a majority of people that he saw in hell were Christians. <laughs> of course, you know, the first question that comes to mind is, well, why, right? Well, he said that Christians identify just so strongly with the idea of heaven looking and feeling a certain way that when they finally get there, they refuse to believe that it's heaven because it's, it's nothing like they imagined it would be. You know, it's nothing like it was described in the Bible. And so they refuse to go there and uh, end up in hell until they, you know, until they can sort of overcome their own beliefs about it which he, of course, said that many eventually do overcome their beliefs about it. But, you know, you can see how strongly people hold on to their beliefs, even after death. This is how strong the pull of our ideas and beliefs are. And the main force, sort of at the helm of this confusion, is ego. And not just the ego, but our identification with the ego. And if the ego is, you know, something we've spent our entire lives protecting, I mean, you bet your ass that people will you know, put up perhaps one of the, the greatest existential fights of their lives when a dark night of the soul sort of exposes the ego for what it is. And once that fight ends, I mean, we will often just go through the same emotional stages of grieving people go through when they lose a loved one. And this, you know, this is the moment where we start to be honest about life. See, whether you wait your entire life to realize the instability of the ego or whether you choose to realize it now, um, one thing is definitely certain. The images that we create for ourselves just really can't be sustained, no matter how much we try, right? At some point, we either willingly do the work to illuminate the ego and change our perspective about this whole thing called life, or, you know, nature will do it for us just gradually with time. You know, when I was young, um, about 17, um, I was cited by a police officer in an outdoor mall for underage smoking a day before my 18th birthday. And I know what you're all thinking. That's a, a pretty chicken shit thing for a police officer to do, right? And it was, you know, a day before my 18th birthday. Luckily, I, I was still considered a minor. And so I had my day in court. And, uh, you know, the irony about this day was uh, that there was another fellow who appeared before the judge prior to me. And uh, he was sentenced to one weekend of a, of a drug awareness class for consumption of marijuana and, uh, of course, a minor fine. And uh, what the judge gave me in contrast to that was 40 hours of uh, community service for being cited for underage smoking. I mean, props to the fellow before me, but, you know, isn't that some shit, right? Of course, I'm certain it didn't help that I, you know, had tons of tattoos and a lip piercing, 
But, you know, that's, that's just how things rolled back then. Of course, you know, nowadays, tattoos and piercings and underage smoking are the least of our, govern, our government's problems, right? Anyways, um, I thought for sure that I would be, you know, picking up old McDonald's trash and empty Dasani bottles on the side of the freeway. Uh, but no, you know, like they sent me to a senior care facility called Acacia Adult Day Services in Orange County. Well, I mean, now it's called Healthy Aging Center. They changed the name. And uh, this is where they take care of and, and, and treat those who are living with Alzheimer's or things like dementia. You know, in the spiritual community, uh, we talk a lot about synchronicity and everything in the universe involving some sort of intention, right? And little did I know how much of a blessing it was for me to have been sent to this facility. And it's ironic, you know, that when we think of miracles that happen in life, we typically think of source energy intervening in a way that seems more mysterious and divinely guided, you know, like like the Egyptian god Thoth appearing in front of Drumvalil Melchizedek in his living room while he's just, you know, standing there in a robe sipping on his morning tea, you know, something like that. You know, like where he unravels all of the mysteries of the emerald tablets from a scroll onto the, his coffee table, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, you know, it, it didn't happen that way for me. And I'm certain, you know, it doesn't happen that way for most people. Um, for me, the, the sort of divine intervention came in the form of an underage smoking charge that blessed me with the privilege of volunteering for the elderly at 18. And it was that one charge, you know, that one charge that became uh, a catalyst for my journey into things like hospice work and sound healing. You know, like... We really have to respect the beautiful chaos life sometimes brings our way, right? So the reason I bring up working with the elderly is that it illuminated a lot of things about the ego that I, I wouldn't have understood otherwise, especially at 18. You know, when you're 18, you're almost too certain about who it is that you think you are, right? Even though it's almost guaranteed that you're completely full of shit, you know, and, th and that's the thing, right? When you're 18, you're so sure about the game you're playing and you think it's real. And you think it's real because you're coming almost directly from a schooling system that has done everything in its power to convince you that it is. And, you know, as a young adult, you're either conforming to the views of our society or you're rebelling against them. And it's usually one of the two, right? And ultimately, you know, neither of them are correct because they're happening within the sort of polarity of the game, right? So when we're 18, you know, we approach everything with this sort of like naive conviction. Now, I mean, I've never been an asshole, right? I've always been what I would consider to be a good person. I was just very naive and sort of misinformed about a lot of things, you know, like most children are. And so one really important perspective that I was able to learn from spending hours with the elderly was this sense of innocence that not even I had at the time. Right? There, was, there was something just wildly different about it. Right? It was more sophisticated. Right? It didn't lack experience in the same way that a child does, but there was also just something very still childlike about it. Now, I'm not the, the biggest proponent of the Bible, um, mainly due to the fact that many of its teachings tend to get hijacked by fundamentalist Christian groups that use it to create division in our world. But uh, there is a verse that I've always remembered and held with me since my youth. And uh, that's in Matthew 18, 
where he says, well, Jesus says, he says this, he says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like a children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you first hear this, it seems really quite paradoxical to you because, I mean, especially as an adult, right? You know, because we spend more than half of our lives training and learning to not be children, right? Very early on, we identify children as being naive, right? We identify them as being immature and uh, unable to really survive in this world without the help of others, right? Without the assistance of our parents. And that is everything that we're trained not to be growing up, right? Our sort of American culture thrives on the values of being radically independent and self-sustaining. I mean, even today, you know, children are seen more of as a, an inconvenience and an obligation to most people, right? Most people that initiate conversations about whether two people should have children. And uh, I mean, that's not just it. I mean, we've all had our own experience with children, whether that being our recollection of children going up or, you know, our experience with the, the children of our relatives or friends or even strangers. And, uh, you know, many collectively agree that kids can be total punk asses, right? I mean, I don't know. One can argue that their angst is a result of our culture not being designed to, you know, foster their innocence. But um, nonetheless, you know, when we hear Jesus saying, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's pretty disorienting, right? Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus saying that we should praise little punk-ass children that bully other children on the, you know, the YouTube comments of a Miley Cyrus music video, you know? Or, um, you know, is he asking us to be more like the children that wreak havoc on their parents in a Target checkout line, you know, because they, they wouldn't buy them candy or something like that, right? And I would say no. You know, I, I, I think what Jesus is talking about is a quality of innocence and childlike energy that every human being is born with. Yet, you know, because our culture doesn't support it, we don't invest much energy in nurturing it. The sort of childlike innocence that I'm talking about really is, is this sense of presence and wonder for life, right? It's this energy of curiosity and joy for simply being alive. And when we, you know, peel through all of the cultural conditioning that we place onto our children, we can typically find this energy of presence and curiosity there. You know, the one thing that we can perceive in children that's really undeniable um, is that they don't seem to be preoccupied with what they think of their experience, right? They're more occupied with the simplicity of their experience. And because they aren't preoccupied with the emotional battlefield of, of concepts and ideas, they can more easily just find joy in the simple experiences of being alive. I mean, ironically enough, this quality of experience ends up being something we strive for later in life, you know, like not to be immature children, but to embody this quality of uh, curiosity and presence and, and joy in the same way that a child does. Now, you know, there are a lot of people um, out there that would consider this idea of being like children to be silly, you know, they would consider it to be unproductive or even immature. But uh, when we embark on the spiritual journey and cultivating inner peace, we find a teaching that is far more profound than anything else. I mean, we find that a lot of conflict or suffering and anxiety that we feel in life, you know, it comes as a result of our, our very adult way of looking at the world, right? I mean, much of the beliefs, ideas, and concepts that we hold, you know, they tend to drive feelings of chaos in us. 
And these thoughts and emotions are what seem to prevent us from experiencing true joy in life. I mean, if this is what we define as being a mature and evolved adult, I mean, I'd say just fuck that, right? And I just renounce all of that just really quick. And perhaps, you know, that's what the spiritual journey is eventually calling us to do. I mean, more than anything, it seems that we shit on the innocent dynamics of children because, you know, in some sadistic way, we would rather them suffer in the same ways that we do. And so, you know, we lambast them with our ideologies of worldly suffering and, you know, do everything within our power to just beat the innocence out of them. I mean, all the while, you know, claiming to be the more mature, evolved, and responsible adults at the same time, right? Of course, we don't typically recognize this abuse until we're as old as our parents were when they raised us, right? I mean, I'm certain every 30-year-old gets to a place in their lives when they, you know, they realize how misinformed they were by their own parents. I mean, my parents divorced in their 30s when I was a child. And, uh, you know, it took me 30 years of life to come to the conclusion that they didn't know what the fuck that they were doing at the time, you know? I mean, it, it's a surreal feeling to have a conversation with your mother about, you know, the various ways in which they could have handled that situation differently. And sometimes they're even taking advice from you, right? I mean, it, it, it's situations like this that make life just very strange at times. But it's really interesting how it takes us becoming an adult to realize how stupid this adult game we've been playing is. And more than anything, you know, like how immature and naive and misinformed it is. And that's the irony about it, right? You know, we spend our youth just being programmed to think of adults as mature and wise and informed. Then we spend our, our youth just wanting and trying to be one. And then spend more than half of our lives just playing the role of being an adult, only to realize at a certain point, you know, how immature, naive, and, and silly being an adult really is. And we all buy into this game because, you know, it's a game we all collectively play with each other. And uh, it's fundamentally really no different than pretending you're a fucking superhero on the playground at school, right? And then we spend, you know, the remaining years of our lives just trying to unlearn everything we've placed so much of our trust into all these years. You know, when I was a child, um, I remember being taken to work by my mother uh, during one of those take-your-child-to-work days. And uh, I vividly remember looking into the window of a busy office where different people were working. And I remember seeing everyone there as adults. And I saw them there as adults just doing adult things that I didn't understand. Yet at the same time, just identify them as being more evolved than me. And fast forward more than, you know, 20 years later, you know, where I used to see adults doing adult things, I now see, you know, children just collectively playing this game of what they think it means to be an adult. And no one, I mean, it, really no one knows what the fuck is going on, you know, like, like really going on, you know what I mean? And, you know, as an adult, it, it, it looks more like a game than anything. And what makes it more of a tangible reality is that we all seem to be wildly invested in pretending that it's real. And this is my point, right? We never lose the capacity of being like children. We play the same games. We still play make-believe. Um, but instead of you know, embodying our intrinsic qualities of innocence and curiosity, we silence these aspects in ourselves and commit to a life of emotional suffering instead. And, you know, it's, it's this suffering, it's this uh, emotional inward chaos that becomes one of the greatest catalysts in us freeing ourselves from it. Because, you know, at a certain point, we realize how unsustainable it is just trying to perpetuate this lie of being an adult. 
And this is when, you know, this is when we all just start to embark on the journey and returning to the roots of who we are. And it seems a part of this returning home involves us sort of returning to this more childlike innocence in us. And this, this is what I was able to perceive in the faces of the elderly patients I encountered when volunteering. And while many of the people that I had met there had their grounding in, you know, some sort of spiritual belief, the majority of them seemed to have followed a more linear path in awakening from the dream of being a person. And it seemed to be a path that took them, you know, 70 to 90 years of life experience just to get to. And whether they chose a more direct path to innocence in the form of a, a spiritual practice, or whether they took a more linear path through just experiencing life, it seemed that everyone here within this facility all shared the same sort of collective energy. And it was the energy of innocence. Of course, it's not the blissful ignorance uh, that a, an actual child would experience, but more of a, an innocence that expressed a deep reverence for life because you know, they've experienced almost every emotional dynamic one can experience in one lifetime. Right? And they, they've experienced that, and they've, they've come to the conclusion that the most important and lasting quality in one's life that invokes some type of meaning is love. And you know, from this place of love, a, a different type of seeing takes place. Right? Somehow, they're able to see through the, the facet of our worldly illusions. And because of that, you know, they, they spend a majority of their time living in the moment and, and engaging in a, a simple type of discourse with those around them. I mean, certainly that was the case with me, you know, like while I was preoccupied with being a person, they appeared more occupied with, you know, the simple joys of being alive, knowing there wasn't much life left to live. I mean, perhaps it's commonplace to reach this realization about life as we approach old age. I mean, after all, I mean, one could only imagine how surreal it must be to witness the world you were a part of change. And, uh, you know, the people you grew up with just slowly passing away. I mean, surely if, if you didn't have a, a spiritual practice at this point in your life, it seems the universe is uniquely designed for all of us to experience a, a type of waking up through the witnessing of these natural changes that occur in life as we get older. And this is what I mean, you know, whether we commit to a spiritual discipline that, you know, inspires a dark night of the soul experience to occur in our youth, or whether we play through the illusions of life, I mean, we're all given the opportunity by source to sort of awaken from these illusions of being a person. I think much of the goal in spirituality is initiating this process of awakening just earlier in life. And as a way to lessen, you know, the amount of suffering and pain we expose ourselves to. And if we have the opportunity to do so, I mean, it, it seems almost a moral obligation to embark on a journey that can support that. Of course, you know, it, it takes an enormous amount of courage to commit ourselves to awakening from our ego. I mean, especially during a time in our life when, you know, the ego seems to be doing so much for us. I mean, giving up fame and popularity or, or power, you know, it, it's the last thing someone in their 30s wants to do. But it's important to understand the type of surrender that I'm talking about here. Because... You know, awakening isn't about just throwing all worldly pursuits into the trash. You know, awakening doesn't mean that we should all just quit our jobs and just stop participating in life altogether. I mean, I think this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of enlightenment, right? And this is where we often get it wrong. 
we see people like Sri Ramana Maharshi just sitting at the base of Arunachala in India in just a loincloth. And, you know, we run for the hills in fear of this being sort of like a mandatory type of fate for us. But it's not true, you know? I mean, of course, you know, some people may feel compelled to do this. And if they do, you know, that's just how enlightenment unravels for them. But let's just be honest, you know, it's not practical for most people to do that. And it doesn't have to be, you know? So let me explain it this way. So in awakening, uh, you will find that you can still be you, right? You can even still be the you that you're used to being, right? Awakening is not about becoming a completely different person. I mean, it may mean that for some people, but definitely not for everyone. You know, awakening has more to do with how we perceive our experiences in life and the place in which we perceive life as it happens. And it has more to do with uh, a shift in how we experience ourselves and the world outside, and this shift, you know, is so unbelievably subtle that many people tend to miss it at some point in their journey. And the reason many people miss it is because, you know, we approach awakening with many assumptions, one of which is that we think awakening will come as some sort of uh, mystical experience, much like uh, a psychedelic experience, right? You know, like where, uh, you know, source punches you in the face with a bliss bomb of energy just so strong that we kind of just dissolve into a sort of trance state, you know? <laughs> of course, you know, this may happen, but again, this, this doesn't always happen for most people. So my point is, you know, we can come to the doorway of awakening with many of our own beliefs of how this whole process unravels. And if we have these beliefs, we will often miss the experience of awakening the moment that it occurs because, you know, our attention will be on our expectations instead. And this is one of the more dangerous experiences to have, because if you're not grounded in the simplicity of your experience, you might misinterpret the experience of awakening as being something that it isn't. You know, like you might come out of it thinking that you've been given a gift that no one else has. You might come out of it, you know, with an even bigger ego than you had before. So, you know, it's important to, you know, stay grounded in this process and not miss the subtleness and simplicity of awakening, because really all it is is a shift in how we experience life. You know, like for a moment, we go from experiencing life as an ego to instead experiencing life from awareness, from, you know, experience itself. And once we experience life from our awareness, you know, a byproduct of this is, you know, our ability to experience the sort of ephemeral nature of the ego from a more, uh, I would say, like embodied perspective, right? Like you can still be you and choose to still utilize your ego, uh, I think the question becomes more of whether you still choose to be you after you experience your true self. And so um, Ashanti has this quote um, that I really, really like. He says, it's not like enlightenment does anything to you. All enlightenment does is show you the truth about reality. And once you experience the truth, you have no choice but to change. That, that's what he says, right? But it's not an imposition, right? It's It's not like you're you're forced into being awareness and completely cut off from ego. Uh, in all honesty, there are some people that experience a type of awakening and shortly after their realization, they, they find themselves just right back in their ego moving through life. I mean, it's not like they lost enlightenment, right? It's not like one day they wake up and awakening just wasn't there anymore. More than anything, you know, what tends to happen with these types of people is, uh, they try everything in their power to go on living the way that they were before. But instead of being asleep in the dream, 
they end up experiencing just even more suffering than they did before. Because, you know, what used to be a life lived entirely unconscious is now uh, an illuminated self that is able to see through the illusion of the whole game going on. And so their attempt to return to the ego self ends up becoming uh, a sort of strong resistance to the truth of who they are, right? And this creates a lot of pain and suffering for them, right? So it would be similar to what happens when we resist pain and opposed to feeling through it, right? It just compounds and just gets worse. If you attempt to return to your ego self after awakening, um, you'll typically find that the you, right, the you that you imagine that you were is no longer available there in the same way. Right? You'll attempt to live in the ego, right? And, and instead, you'll feel this deep emptiness instead. Right? And it doesn't matter how long you keep this game of uh, you know, pretending going, because you know, eventually, eventually you'll return to the spirit and realize that you know, once the door is open, you, you really can't close it. But um, honestly, this, this shouldn't scare you. you know? Even the fact that your curiosity led you into the spiritual dimension, I, I mean, I'd be willing to bet that most of the people that are embarking on this journey to awakening are um, doing so in an effort to resolve themselves of trauma or pain, sadness. And uh, I mean, if this is the case, I mean, you're definitely in the right place because um, this is where you will find your peace, right? I mean, this is where you will find your healing. You'll find it in this sort of subtle recognition that much of what we suffer is self-perpetuated through ideas, beliefs, and memories of the past. And if the ego's foundation is rooted in these things, you'll find a really an unbelievable peace in knowing that you are not what your ego thinks you are, right? You're, you're so much more vast and beautiful than just thoughts and memories. So my point in speaking about my experience in elderly care is that you know we as humans, we spend our entire lives building a false sense of self, Right? We're taught in school to value this process. And when we become adults, we, we implement that process and place it into action. Right? And school teaches us how to build the foundation of our egoic houses. And we spend our youth and just adult years building those houses. And once that house is built, you know, we spend more than half of our lives living in these houses just completely separated from the outside world. Right? We spend our, our lives just protecting our houses from intruders, right? We, we build fortresses, we, we build walls, and we build like entire security systems that people cannot penetrate. And it doesn't matter who's on the other side of that wall because what matters to us is that we have this sense of security and protection even though the world outside is constantly changing, right? And we do this until one day, whether it be through a spiritual awakening or a series of unfortunate events, or even a psychedelic experience, or, or I mean, through old age, right? One day, you know, that storm, that storm of the divine just sort of rolls through your neighborhood and just shakes the foundation of your false self. And you realize how shaky and unstable that house really is. You know, we spend our entire lives trying to cultivate a sense of security. Yet what we don't realize about security is that it works in direct contradiction to life, right? It works in direct contradiction to our true nature. Because when we seek security, we seek something definitive, right? We often seek something that doesn't move or change, 
right? We, we, want, we want to possess a certain feeling for life. And once we have that feeling, we want to capture it in a way that, that keeps us feeling that and nothing else, right? Happiness and love, for example, those are, are perfect examples of how we seek this, right? Because happiness and love are, are feelings that we want to permanently feel. Now, I'm not saying that we, you know, we shouldn't want to feel happiness or love. I mean, we most certainly should want to feel that. But there's a difference between happiness and love as a, a natural unfolding from the center of our spirit and happiness and love from the desire and need to capture and control it once we do feel it, right? So the difference is between a natural love that flowers from within and a momentary feeling of love that is produced by something happening outside of ourselves, right? The idea of even seeking security in love and happiness sort of implies that you don't really have it. And so we seek it outside of ourselves in order to capture it. And if that's how we want to capture, you know, love, you know, at times you may get it, but you'll more often suffer as a result because, you know, let's be honest, life out there isn't always happy or loving. And so you'll always be swimming against the current of life, just trying desperately not to drown, right? But um, let me tell you, I mean, there is a deeper, more intrinsic love that flowers from within once we connect with the truth of who we are. And once we are connected with that energy, it won't be a question of trying to find security and love and happiness because you'll already have it within you. You know, when we allow love and happiness to naturally flow from our center, we'll find ourselves just becoming less and less interested in this idea of security because we'll realize that true happiness and love comes from our, our participation in the flow and the sort of changefulness of life, right? In this deeper realm, you know, we can... Uh, freely flow through all of these various dynamics that occur in life and just be completely okay with whatever direction it happens to go, right? This is the Tao, right? This is the Tao of love. So my point is this, right? We, we spend our lives creating an image out of the need for security in what you know we consider to be an unpredictable world. And we do this out of fear of many things, you know, life, death, the unknown, because the culture in which we live sort of perpetuates this idea that we should be afraid of life and that we should protect what we have at all costs. And in order to not be afraid, you know, we develop a certain image and way of doing things that sort of give us a false sense of security and protection in life. And we'll spend an entire lifetime beating ourselves into the ground trying to nurture this sense of security. You know, at some point we realize how tired we've grown of pretending, right? Of dreaming. And one day when that awakening comes, you know, we finally start to wake up from this dream. You know, that's when we can finally be like children again, right? Like the elderly patients in the care facility. And, uh, you know, isn't it ironic though, you know, that the place we start our journey as a child is the same place we return to in our journey back home to the heart. But we aren't returning to a blissful ignorance of a child, what we return to is that pure loving space and awe and wonder we once had as children. And that is for the simple yet you know, profound joy of being alive. We can only really come to that understanding once we realize that we, like here and now, are enough. So I just wanted to say thank you um, for tuning in to Divine Nobody's podcast. Um, once again, you know, it's, it's always a blessing to be able to share these reflections with you. 
and uh, I sincerely appreciate your patience with us with uh, getting these episodes out to you, uh, especially as we um, undergo some you know, changes with the show. But uh, nonetheless, you know, I will always be committed to sharing these reflections with you, and there will be, you know, most certainly be more uh, to come in the, the weeks ahead. So thank you again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you soon. Namaste, friends.